This is UX Radio. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Margot Bloomstein is one of the most prominent voices in the content strategy industry. She is the author of Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap, and Content Strategy at Work, real-world stories to strengthen every interactive project. She's also the principal of Appropriate.inc, a brand and content strategy consultancy based in Boston. As a speaker and strategic advisor, she has worked with marketing teams in a range of organizations over the past two decades. The creator of BrandSort, she developed the popular message architecture-driven approach, Content Strategy. Margot teaches in the Content Strategy Graduate Program at FH Joannium University in Graz, Austria, and lectures around the world about brand-driven content strategy and designing for trust. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. This is Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. And today we're here with author and content strategist, Margot Bloomstein. Welcome, Margot. Hi. Hi there. I'm so excited you're here today. You are, I think, our first content strategist on UX Radio. Yes. Uh, for me personally, I've been very lucky in my career. I worked with content strategists at Disney back 20 years ago, uh, mostly from the Karen McGrain Razorfish School uh, of content strategy. So I have had a lot of experience with content strategy in my life as a UX person. But I know lots of UX people do not get the chance to work closely with content strategists. So that's why I'm very excited that you're here on the show today. Wonderful. Well, I hope that I am the, the first, but not the last. <laughs> I feel like that that kind of background that you're describing, like the Karen McGrain School and going back to the Razorfish days, that's that's kind of my background as well, because I've been working in content strategy now 21 years, started out my career across the street from Razorfish at Sapient. Sapient and Razorfish were across the street from each other in Cambridge. <laughs> and yeah, that that kind of that early, those early days of the practice were were interesting and I think set a pretty strong foundation for where we are now. Because I think there we were pulling in kind of threads from journalism and technical communication and and kind of seeing where it met with with design and information architecture. We weren't yet talking about user experience, I, I don't think. And uh, and kind of seeing where those those points of definition were, I think, where the different practices bumped into each other, budget-wise, usually, and intersected in in the best of circumstances. So, yeah, I know those I know those roots well. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that intersection? Well, I think I mean going back like twenty years ago. As I said, like content strategy was pulling on threads from from journalism and professional writing and technical writing. But I think in a lot of ways, certainly in those early early days of agency experience, sometimes it was more or less glorified copywriting where we were looking to put more more structure around things. And I remember going to some early meetings where we were talking about content management systems and, and kind of the, the opportunity that they might present. But I think for, for my work, at least, a lot of it focused on both structurally and then in practice, how we complemented design and information architecture, how content strategy complemented design and information architecture in sort of this three-legged stool that I think we would come to describe as user experience design. And when I say that that was sort of a, 
both a functional or structural complement as well as how we complemented each other in practice. That's because the the team at Sapien, and I would guess at many large agencies, was kind of formally divided that way. The creative services or, or creative group was divided into design, which was largely graphic design and communication design, information architecture that focused on the organization of information, and content strategy that focused on when we were evolving from brochure where, all right, well, where were we getting copy? And content was largely copy at that point, or at least in terms of how we were thinking of it. Where are we getting it from? Was the client providing it? Were we working with a freelance copywriter to create it? And then how were we how are we sort of systematizing it or, or making it more consistent? And I think that practice of making things more consistent and thinking about from where are they coming, where are they going, like if we're thinking in terms of long-term governance and, and how to expire content out of a system or archive it when it's no longer relevant, that kind of thinking uh, very much evolved into modern content strategy. Because in, in 2009 at the IA Summit, when they convened the the content strategy consortium, we were there were like twenty some people in the room there tasked with saying, "Okay, we're all using this term." This is now ten years after the those early roots that we were describing. We're all using this term. What is it? What does it mean? What does it include? What does it exclude? Is it just glorified copywriting, or is it so much more? And the definition that came out of that that content strategy is planning for the the creation and delivery and governance of, of content in an experience that is useful, usable, and desirable and appropriate to the brand and appropriate to the audience doesn't include copy anywhere in that definition, but very much does include this idea of figuring out where it's coming from, from whom is it coming, who is going to create this. It, there's that idea of responsibility and sustainability inherent in content strategy. And I think that is oftentimes also the perspective that we bring into the broader user experience discipline. Not just what is this going to look like for whom, how are we delivering the information, but also where's this stuff coming from and, and where's it going? Kind of the, the Marie Kondo perspective on, on user experience design, I guess. I can uh, probably can't even count all the times I've uh, underestimated the content needs for a project I'm working on, despite my best, uh, my all my experience. I mean, it is such a tricky thing to to figure out where it's coming from. And then the where it's going is like like an extra master step on top of that. Right, right. Because when we start thinking in terms of what happens post-launch, that's, I think, when we see how teams really mature, not just what we're doing to get this thing out the door and to kind of Heisman it over to the client to maintain, but what tools are we giving them? What, what tools are we creating that are appropriate for their publishing culture, that are appropriate for the, the way they interact with their own internal legal team to maintain this thing over time? Because, I mean, we've all seen and experienced the kind of crummy web experiences where obviously it launched and then no one did anything to keep it updated. And now digital tumbleweeds are blowing through it. Right. But I think thinking long-term, that's really a sign of how how teams mature to better serve their clients and ultimately their end users. So you talked about some of the tools to set them up for success. Can you talk a little bit about some examples? Ooh, I, I hesitate on examples because I just think that is always specific to the different publishing culture. 
Um, well, I mean, when I think about like different clients that I've had over time and how everyone is unique, everyone's a special little snowflake and all. <laughs> and sometimes we have to push back on that and say, but hey, you know, you, you can learn from what people in other industries are doing. You there in higher ed, the other industries are relevant too. <laughs> but at the same time, it all comes down to the, the unique needs of different organizational cultures. I think so much of our success as, as consultants comes down to how we tailor things for the, the weird little needs and peccadilloes of our, of our different clients to make sure that what we're creating doesn't just work in theory, but works in practice and it has to work in their practice. So for example, for some clients, I create editorial style guidelines that that almost feel like Mad Libs, where I'm saying, all right, next time when you're creating a, a product headline, you're going to pick a noun from this column and a verb from this column. And this is what is pre-approved to, to really work in the, in the tone of voice that we've developed for your brand. And also, surprise, this has already been approved by legal. So you can feel like these are appropriate guidelines and guardrails in which you can operate Maybe it's on social media, maybe it's in your web presence or in your print collateral. You can work within these guardrails and feel confident about that work. Know that it's going to get approved the first time. And I think that that is so important, whether we're creating for an established marketing team or if they're working with other agency partners, when people can work with that level of confidence, yeah, that that makes their work so much better. That usually makes their their longevity at the at the organization that much better too. But in other cases, I'm creating tools that are sort of to help teach the teacher or train the trainer so that they can roll it out internally. Maybe um, an editorial calendar so that as other people want to contribute to the experience, they know that what they're contributing will be relevant and that they're getting it in on time if they wanna make something for the homepage that's going to launch in like the holiday season. They know that, okay, it needs to be approved maybe by September or maybe by June, whatever their particular calendar is. So I think we can, we can look at tools like that and figure out how to set our clients and how to set our organizations up for success, knowing that it is different and specific every time. And, th and that's a wonderful thing. That means our organizations aren't aren't boring and monolithic when they're engaging their audiences. That's so great. And I love, I think that's a paint such a great picture of content strategy, right? Because again, we think about it at, coming from the design IA side of things, right? Always have this sort of abstract template, right? Well, this is a type of page. And you know, work with content strategists on the particulars of CMS and how long is the, what's the copy format and all these technical details. But so much of the work is that human workflow, right? Who's going to produce this? How is it going to get approved? How you know that is like the ongoing engine of so many of the experiences that get designed and launched. Very much so, and I think that like what you're describing, like working on the back end of the CMS and making sure that all the content types are what they need to be and that things are appropriately commented or we have the right instructional copy in there to ensure that the people are delivering what they need to to meet the end needs of the, you know, if it's a front end interface or something like that. That's important. I think that that is the easy stuff though because it's that old adage that it's it's not the hardware or the software, it's the wetware that makes things difficult. It's the people in between that we have to really make sure that 
we we serve and that we attend to their needs because if if the way that we deliver content is not culturally appropriate for our end users it will fall flat if the way that we create and sustain content and develop systems to create and sustain it is not culturally attuned to different organizations and and their unique needs and timelines and and processes of approval then that also falls flat. If what we want to ensure is is usage and adoption, and as we say so often, delight, we need to make sure we're really paying attention to those cultural needs. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how it evolved. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I guess we're talking a lot about cultural stuff. <laughs> um, my background is in design. I have a degree in design and anthropology. And I graduated college in kind of like the height of the dot-com boom and bust around 2000. And as we were talking about before, I joined Sapient around that time and actually went right into their content strategy team. So even though I had a background, I had a BFA in design, it felt like the questions that I was asking largely like through the interview process, I guess, were more focused on the kind of work that content strategy did. So I joined that team and had wonderful mentors and managers that that now looking back, I'm like, wow, they were also incredibly patient with my questions. Um, and, uh, and I've lived to tell the tale. <laughs> and um, then as kind of the, the dot-com boom went bust, I left there around 2002 and uh, freelanced for a while, went in-house at Timberland for about a year. And that's where I was first exposed to working with content and design focused on corporate social responsibility and, and what it means to, to create user experiences and engage audiences for a brand that isn't just looking to sell a product, but is looking to sell a product because they want to fund certain nonprofits or to engage in a certain way with their target audience in the communities where they live and work. And that was incredibly eye-opening. And when I left Timberland, it was to join a couple different agencies in a row that were smaller shops, maybe like 50 people or so, that brought me in to start their content strategy disciplines, figure out how they would coincide with design and information architecture. We were starting to talk about experience design for the web at that point and bring over like some of that thinking that had existed for a long time in more offline contexts like exhibit design and all. And when I went to those uh, to that first agency, it was to help them figure out, well, what are the processes that, that content strategy comprises? And how do they dovetail with some of the other work that we're already doing and selling successfully? Because we don't wanna undercut those other budgets or make this a more difficult thing to sell, but what does it mean? And then as clients started asking about it around 2003, 2004, 2005, what is our offering? And uh, so I worked to help articulate what that offering could look like and what sort of activities and deliverables it would comprise. And I think that's when I first started realizing that content strategy is so much more than those activities and deliverables. But as with so much of our work with client engagement, those things are great and they make it easier sometimes to sell what we're doing. Um, and certainly easier, I think, sometimes for our clients to, to think about the work and, and break up the work and put it on a timeline. But 
those deliverables are not nearly as important as the conversations that they capture and, and kind of memorialize and the decisions that they memorialize. And that idea of using our work to, to kind of cultivate more productive conversations with the organizations that we serve, I think that's kind of a through line to my work today. And then as the content strategy discipline has evolved over the past 10, 15, 20 years, I think you've seen um, some kind of specialization within it, which I think is also a thrilling thing because now there are some folks that focus more on, on CMS-driven content strategy. Like that's the kind of work that Dean Barker does and Corey Vilhauer does and Rachel Lovinger gets into some of that as well. And then the kind of work in mobile and, and content strategy uh, for other interfaces and other experiences that like Karen McGrain focuses on and the kind of engagements that, that Christina Halverson and Brain Traffic pursue to support other kind of like larger organizations too. I think you've seen a lot of specialization within content strategy, which is great because I think it signals the way that we're able to serve different organizations and different organizational needs. And within that, I've focused on brand-driven content strategy because I know this is kind of like going back now in time, but I think as we saw around 2000, 2001, when so much of making the web was about brochureware and getting brands brochures online, we saw how most organizations were just focused on what they wanted to publish, what they wanted to say. And it wasn't until I think eLab and some of those other organizations that focused more on user experience kind of bumped into the web and how we make online experiences that, that we started thinking and our clients started thinking more about, well, it's not just what we want to say, it's also what our users need to hear and do. And maybe they're coming to a restaurant website, not just to see what our logo looks like and see our hours, but also to see what's on the menu and to see if we've got things that meet their special dietary needs and if our menu changes day to day and kind of information like that. And I think around that time, we started to see how the pendulum moved in the other direction to focus not exclusively, but extremely on our users' needs. And I guess in pursuing brand-driven content strategy, I've long thought that it's important to kind of drag that pendulum then back to the middle, because if we focus exclusively on our users' needs, within an industry, organizations that serve the same audience and maybe give them the same services or products, by all rights, they should look and sound the same because they're meeting those functional needs in that way. But we know that that doesn't make sense. I mean, if we look at like the airline industry, we know that like if I'm flying out to see you from me in Boston out to you on the West Coast, I could take JetBlue, I could take um, Southwest, I think uh, I could take Alaskan. There, there are a few different options for me there for a long haul nonstop flight coast to coast. They're at about the same price point. But we know among those different brands, they offer very different experiences. And those different experiences help their different audiences identify with them and say, oh, that, that's more of what's right for me the look and the feel and and the overall service design, that's what's right for me. So I think branding can help our audiences self-identify. And I think that there's an opportunity, as I said, to kind of drag the pendulum back to the middle to meet the needs of the brands that we engage, as well as the audiences that they want to engage. So that's been 
my focus within content strategy? I know that's a long answer to your short, pithy question. No, I hope that fantastic. does it justice. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great answer and a great bridge. I can't believe we've gone this far without talking about your brand new book, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap, which was just released in March. Yes. Um, I, I feel like you you touched on it there earlier when you talked about content strategy uniting things like social media, right? This is the kind of thing a UX designer sort of dreams of with a client, right? Like how do I how do I get you to be consistent across your channels, right? The kind of thing that content strategy can do. Oh and come I, on, I mean, can't you just like lose your tone of voice when you're on social media? I mean, a tweet's only 280 characters. Who needs to be on brand there? Well, I, I think your book addresses such a critical problem and something that I I feel is still unfolding in the transition between the old mass media age and the current internet age, right? Which is, and I never I didn't put it I didn't put it together the same way that you did, uh, which is so helpful. Which is just that I believe you know big brands have had this tendency to be very generic, almost almost abstract. Like who's talking to you on social media, right? You have these questions about is there a person and. And, you know, and when you talk about brands like Southwest, when they have such a personality, right, that comes across, I'd love to hear a little bit of your experience and your advice about how brands can become more trustworthy. Well, I think um, like you raised Southwest as an example, and I think to back up from that, just when we look at so many brands that do have distinct voices on social media, we have to wonder, you know, you are you trusting the person behind that account? Or is it really people that are following uh, good, clear style guidelines behind that account? Or are you trusting the brand itself? And it, it's a tough question. And I think we don't always have clear and obvious answers. But I think the more brands can be distinct, the better the better they serve their audiences, also the better they, they serve themselves to, to help themselves stand out among the competition in what may be a crowded industry. And if it's not a crowded industry, at least Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, those are crowded platforms. Why would you not want to stand out? And I don't think you need to be kind of like a quirky consumer brand to do that. Not everybody has to be Stakem Plus, but at the same time, well, we don't need like a, a Zoe Deschanelization of brands all, all pursuing to outquirk each other. I think the idea of helping your brand be true to itself, that can only help you and can only help your audience. So then we get into this challenge of like, okay, be true to you, be more authentic. All brands want to be more authentic. And I always think, okay, well, authentic to what? Do you know what makes you unique and distinct? And if not, I would say that that's the first thing that every organization needs to do. Not just what do you sell, what do you offer, but by engaging with you, what is your audience gain? And, and as far as how we define your audience, what do prospective employees gain? When, when people, even your critics are looking to engage you, do they understand who you are, how you are, and, and what makes your organization unique and different? So the first thing that I think most organizations should do is figure that out, figure out your message architecture. And to kind of think of that as a content strategist, the work around your message architecture, that hierarchy of communication goals that you manifest through all of your touch points, visual and verbal as well. I think that's what helps your organization stand out. And it also clarifies 
who you are, maybe who you used to be and, and what you want to be known for now, as well as the qualities that, that don't define you, that maybe better apply to a competitor or that you would just never want to have associated with your organization. But when someone can look to your brand and say that you're known for being reliable or, or innovative or creative and scrappy, whatever that is, that helps guide so many of your other tactical decisions as an organization, not just how you engage on social media, but maybe also the, the type of campaigns that you run. Are you doing a lot of contests and, and those types of things to, to elevate the work of your clients and consumers? Or are you pushing out a lot of white papers to elevate your own thought leadership? So it can help kind of define that work as well. And I think for, for most brands to start there, to figure out what your message architecture is and, and what it isn't, that's the first step in engaging in a more consistent way. And it's through that, that kind of consistency that you can start to clarify your brand and make it more persistent in the hearts and minds of your target audience. So once you have that unique value proposition, if you will, it's really important to build that trust, but there is a lot of cynicism out there. So can you talk a little bit about the trust gap? Yeah, well, I think that um, what I started noticing maybe uh, around six years ago or so, we saw how so many marketing messages were, were falling flat. And I felt in a way that they necessarily, they, they hadn't really before, or at least to a greater degree. And I think I started noticing this also in the political arena, because at the time, so two election cycles ago in the US, we saw how politicians on both sides of the aisle were playing kind of fast and loose with the truth and how um, how Trump was kind of rewriting his own personal history about how he had supported or not supported the Iraq war, how he had um, supported or not supported abortion rights uh, and other kinds of social issues. And we saw how every time he was caught in a lie, it didn't matter so much to his supporters. And that was that was new. It, it used to be that if, um, if the media caught a politician in a lie, that scuttled their campaign and, and they kind of called them and held them to task on that. And we saw how that was changing. And that, that surprised me uh, because even as maybe we've seen more media becoming kind of a proponent of certain political views, that's not necessarily a new thing. I think it's kind of, uh, we're becoming more aware of it maybe right now, but but it's not necessarily a new thing. But I wondered that this issue where so many people were engaging with political speech in a way where they sort of felt like the effect of it didn't matter, or you know, if they thought of themselves as Trump voters, they still would always think of themselves as Trump voters. What what he said, what the Trump brand said and published and did, did not matter. I wondered if that was going to be a problem to the kinds of organizations that I work with, which largely are not in the political arena. I work with a lot of a lot of retailers and startups and and brands in healthcare and financial services and software. So kind of far outside of, of that DC circle. And I wondered if that was going to be a problem for them too. This idea that, that maybe marketing doesn't matter if people greet it with this idea that, well, everybody lies, everyone's out to make a buck, they're all out to get you. That sort of detachment I thought could be a problem. And as I started digging in more and more, I realized that 
first, this isn't just a problem in the political arena. The stuff that I was noticing six years ago in political speech and in the media's coverage of political speech, that affects every industry. Certainly every industry that engages in, in any kind of marketing or persuasion or, or attempts to even help their audience better help themselves, like if you work in government services, this matters. And I realized that, that if it mattered, that this, this sort of cynicism and cool detachment that people have from expertise, if it mattered, it meant that it would also undermine our work in trying to engage users. And we needed to address this if we wanted to have success in any other way, in any other way that we serve our users or, or try to help our organizations engage with them. And this idea of cynicism I guess I view it as, as a striking and painful difference from, from maybe healthy skepticism, because when we are skeptical, that's what encourages us to do more research, to say, mm, I'm not gonna just take this on face value. Let me dig in a little bit more, do my own research, kind of maybe dig into a story from multiple perspectives or multiple media outlets or, or read, uh, read product reviews on multiple sites. I think that's healthy because skepticism encourages us to engage further. When people are cynical, though, that's when they pull back. That's when they say, I don't trust what you have to say. I'm going to go. I'm going to go away. I'm just going to go with my gut on this. If I feel right, you know, if it feels right, it probably is right. I don't need any more information. And I think putting up those kinds of walls, that sort of cool detachment that says, you can't tell me anything I can't tell myself that's challenging for organizations to overcome. And I think that is exactly what we need to focus on. Wow, I wanna give that a minute to soak in because I think that's a pretty important point. I think it's, it's really interesting as you talk about that challenge, it, it made me think of sort of the other side, how, how large brands have been forced into politics right? And that is a new development, right? Like if you imagine what just happened in, in Georgia with Coca-Cola, it's like that is something that is almost unimaginable a decade ago to think that a brand would have to take a political stand on a on a local state issue uh, and and really have no choice about it and that, that's what i found very interesting right there was no possibility of, of remaining neutral anymore in that arena yeah yeah well the um so interestworthy i write about the sort of the formula or the framework that, that I discovered in talking with so many brands that are successful in cultivating trust. And it's a three-part framework that focuses on voice, which is both verbal and visual, how you maintain and build a familiar and consistent, persistent voice with, uh, with your audience. The second section focuses on volume or the amount of information that you need to share, the level of detail in photography, the level of, of detail in what you write that best empowers your audience. And the third section focuses on vulnerability. And I look at that from two different angles, both what brands have to do when they've messed up, when they need to publicly apologize or come to some sort of reckoning with their audience, how they regain trust then. But then also the sort of vulnerability that brands experience when they realize they need to be more transparent and open with their audiences about their own beliefs and practices and politics. And what you're describing, what, what we just saw in Georgia, where here they passed a very restrictive, discriminatory, some would say racist and bigoted uh, voter law. And the brands that did not react immediately and and critically to that 
were called on the carpet by their supporters, by people saying, if, if, if you don't think this is important, your brand is no longer important to me and my purchasing habits. Like you mentioned Coke, but also Delta. And there, there have been several others that if they did not react strongly and swiftly, their audiences and their critics strongly and swiftly reacted to them. And as you said, that that was almost unthinkable 10, 20 years ago, where I think most consumers expected there to be a big separation between politics and the brands in their lives, the, the places where they spent money, the organizations that they chose to support. We didn't, we didn't want to hear about the political leanings of Coke. But that has changed over the past 20 years. Um, I believe it was in the last Edelman Trust survey, it was something like 60% of US consumers do want to hear the, the political um, leanings of, of the different brands where they spend their money. And that's because more and more people realize that we vote with our dollars. In the age of Citizens United, where, where brands are supporting candidates, now we see how much further our money goes when we are giving money to those brands that support different candidates and causes. So why shouldn't they be aligned with our values? And I think we've seen more and more that when brands choose to remain out of the fray, maybe quote unquote, above politics, that is a political statement in itself because remaining above politics, whatever that means, is a sign of privilege that isn't usually shared by the people that are very much affected by discriminatory politics and policies. So most people agree now, as I said, it's upwards of 60%. Most people do feel like, well, I'd rather know the political leanings of the brands in my life than not know. It may cause me to, to change my buying habits. Maybe I'll, I'll double down and want to support that organization even more, or I'll choose to, to take my, my spending habits elsewhere. One of the organizations that I write about in Trustworthy, Penzi's Spices, I think we've seen how they've been, they've been living the, the pros and cons of this approach over the past several years. Because when, when Donald Trump first became the, um, the Republican candidate, for president, I believe that was when the CEO of Penzi, uh, Bill Penzi, took to Facebook and he said, look, this guy's policies and rhetoric around immigration, we don't support that. Those are not our policies and beliefs about immigration. We believe that immigrants are a, a vital and necessary part of the fabric of American society. We support more open immigration policies. And before you say, hey, stay in your lane there, Spice Boy, know that this is our lane because so much of the, the kind of American cookbook and so many of our family favorites come here on the backs of immigrants. And, and when you're buying spices from us, when you're buying Aleppo pepper, that's coming from Aleppo, Syria, a war-torn region that is like that in part because of U.S. politics. So yeah, we want to engage in U.S. politics. These are our, these are our personal politics. And when he published that to Facebook, you sort of heard the, the record scratch in the spice buying world <laughs> where, where so many people kind of stood up and, and took notice and the headlines around it were pretty vicious. They lost a lot of consumers. But then you saw how Penzi's expanded their target audience. After losing some of their core consumers, they gained so many more. Their year-over-year -year sales jumped something like 50% because they saw a huge spike in sales 
every time they shared their politics in that kind of open way, because now they had people supporting them and shopping there, not just folks that were were home cooks, but also people that, that maybe never set foot in the kitchen, but they had friends and family that do, and they wanted to buy presents for them, and they decided to shop at Penzi's. And we saw how that process of putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is who we are, this is how we are, that's an effort just like any other part of branding to inform their audience and to be more distinct for their audience. And for Penzies, it helped them expand their audience. And I think that is, that's a lesson that we see again and again for every organization that takes a stand and, and makes their, makes their values more visible for their audience. It seems like some of the brands want to remain neutral so they don't have to take one side or the other. Do you think that's really based out of fear of what the consequences could be if they are vulnerable? Yes. Yeah. I think it's a, I think when brands choose to remain neutral, they are gambling that they can remain unnoticed by their audiences, that no one will pay attention and they'll just be able to kind of keep their heads down and and hope business keeps going as, as normal, as planned, as it's always been. But that's the thing. In any industry, business never remains as it's always been. We've certainly seen over the past year, whether we talk about different social issues and how brands are jumping into that fray or just our daily lives and how so much has changed about them. Nothing ever remains the same. And for brands to gamble that it will, that's a losing bet. And I think they, when they operate in that way, it is very much out of fear. Maybe it's fear coming from the legal department, fear coming from the C-suite, but I can bet that within the organization, politics are not neutral. You may have multiple perspectives going on there, but usually audiences and internal employees and and other audiences are kind of waiting to hear where do we fall on these issues? Because if it's a problem, if it's a social issue, if it's an animating force in society outside the walls of the company, whether it's around Black Lives Matter or Me Too or other issues around equity and social justice or climate change, if it is affecting life outside the company, it is affecting life inside the company too. Wow. So much there. We could keep going forever on that topic. But uh, I'd like to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what would you like your legacy to be? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say that when people pick up Trustworthy, I want them to realize that if there are problems in society and we're in an industry that engages society, that engages users, that we are builders of brands and brainstorms, As designers, we look at the world differently, and that is not a bad thing because cynics look at the world as it is and say, it's worse. Designers look at the world as it is and say, it can be better. Let's make it better. Let's work so that it will be better. And I think that idea of work and responsibility, I want everyone who works in our industry to know that that responsibility is shared and It is all of our responsibility to make things better. That is the purpose of design, to see things as they are and say they're not good enough. They're not good enough for everyone or for every context. So let's make them better. And I think 
that's, that's the impact that I would like to see from Trustworthy. I want everyone to pick it up and say, this is a book for me. And now I want to work to make things better. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. We would love to share with the audience how they can hear more from you. I know you have some upcoming events. Um, can you share that? Sure, yeah. Um, several different uh, meetups coming up as well as um, From Business to Buttons. I'll be speaking at that and teaching a workshop that is based in Stockholm, but it's virtual this year, so you don't have to be in Stockholm. Also, UX Fest, I'll be teaching a masterclass there, also based in London, but virtual this year, so you don't have to be in London. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. It was wonderful to have you as our featured guest. Thank you. This was so much fun. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy.is.